G'day everyone, and welcome to a brand new series here on another Bloody Movie Podcast. Yes, it's all—it's very dry, the weather is hot, and those panpipes are intensifying because this is the podcast at Hanging Rock. We're not really in Macedon, we're not really at Hanging Rock, but we are here in the state of Victoria, well at least I am, and this is a new series of podcast, or a, you know, a new series of podcast episodes with all about Australian cinema, from the classics to the really obscure to the good, and the bad, you know, we're going to try to cover as many Australian films as we can here on this podcast series. And this serves as the pilot, and I could not think of a better film to start off with. A film that is now 50 years and one week old since its premiere at the Cannes Film Festival back in 1971. It is, of course, Wake in Fright, one of the greatest Australian films ever made, directed by a Canadian, funnily enough. But I think that adds a lot to what this film and really helps it in a lot of ways. And here to join me in talking about this, really this seminal masterpiece of Australian film is Liam Norville. Thank you for joining me, Liam. Thank you very much. This is, yeah, talking about the greatest Australian film, arguably, on your first episode. Yes, it's it's the perfect, as, as we said, it's recently just had its 50th anniversary and Liam is the perfect guest to have on this show because he has worked his, he's worked the title in this film into a pun of his Twitter handle. So like he is, <laughs> you know, could not have got a more qualified person to come on this podcast. I actually, I literally was thinking when you asked me, I was like, is it because of my username? Because <laughs> <laughs> if so, good, good idea. Smart choice. Yes. Yeah, so when was the, Liam, when was the first time you watched Wake in Fright? um uh let's see uh 2019 um let's say like may uh like last like jesus two years ago i think somewhere around there almost yeah. exactly two years ago maybe yeah i just i saw the film on stand and i vaguely knew about it sort of like okay it's like this a seminal film of the australian new wave i was like ah, screw it i'll watch it and <laughs> Then I watched it and I was like, holy shit, <laughs> this is one hell of a film. And uh, yeah, it was just, it's definitely a very shocking experience the first time you watch it. Mm, for sure. So the first time I saw this was for my Australian screen class uh, that was run by the great Dr. Mark Freeman at Swinburne University, who I desperately want to try and get on this podcast at some point. Uh, not sure which film to talk about. He'll probably come on and talk about fucking Kath and Kim Dorella or whatever. Like he has a bizarre obsession with that film. So Mark, if you're listening, please come come on the show. But yeah, so I watched this for my Australian screen unit for university in this, and I had a similar reaction. Like, I mean, I grew up in not not a, a mining town specifically like this, but like in a regional sort of town where like. A lot, some of the things that happened in this film were a little bit relatable and especially as somebody as an Australian who chooses not to drink alcohol specifically like this film is kind of like my own personal hell in a lot of sort in a lot of ways yeah I, I, I've done I've dealt with many drunk people like uh, like gatherings and such so like the personal hell John's in I can just like on a spiritual level <laughs> I feel I relate to him a lot yeah oh. and you've also ever since then you've um ha also had a job in a bar so <laughs> yeah. maybe this on a rewatch I'm not sure if like a lot of this sort of I don't know if you've seen this sort of behavior a bit more <laughs> since your first time you're doing um yes i mean it was interesting because the job was mainly after hours actually but i was there when the pub opened 
So, like, you did get, like, the real, like, bogany types coming back from work <laughs> from the middle of the night. And you'd be like, oh, mate, is the pub open yet? It's like, no, no, it's wait for an hour. Um, so, yeah, yeah, you just, it, it's like, it's just, I guess I sort of, like, I don't know, like, sort of understand how much people drink because it's like, oh, this certain uh, type of beer is always running, uh, always, like, uh, the kegs are run out over, all, every time I go there. It's like, okay, the toy, the, um, uh, what do you call them? The one, the, I'm trying to think, what's the one that everyone drinks? It's the... Uh, uh, I don't know. V, not, oh, I was going to say, yeah, VB in New South Wales. I'm not sure. Uh, the blue, the one with the blue. It's a blue one. Like, oh, Foster's? Uh, that's Foster's is more the cliche of what, you know, international people think Australians drink. But like, you know, I don't even think you can get Foster's in Australia anymore. Nah, I, I think there was only one little area in the corner for the kegs. <laughs> Foster's at my pub. But yeah, pretty much, yeah, you sort of just, yeah, people just drink so much. <laughs> mm. And we should also say, like, you, it, this is also in a regional town on the way to Sydney as well. Like, similarly to what uh, Bundan Yabba is in this film, like, Bundan Yabba is very clearly meant to be a very thinly veiled version of Broken Hill because they talk about it being a mining town and, you know, like, it's, it's very dry, like, all this sorts of stuff. So, yeah. Yeah, I mean, uh, thankfully, my town is not, like, literally the middle of a desert. <laughs> it's filled with people like the ones we see in the film. But, yeah, there's definitely, like, that regional town-type feeling here. Mm. Yeah. And it's interesting to talk about, like, you so talked about it being, like, the first sort of, like, that sort of kick-started the Australian New Wave. Because the way I sort of see this film, it kind of lives between the two worlds of both that sort of Australian New Wave, like that AFC sort of, uh, you know, style of filmmaking that was followed on, like, film from Walkabout. And then, like, you know, brought people like, you know, Peter Weir and, like, Gillian Anderson, uh, no, Gillian Armstrong, sorry, Gillian Anderson's the actress, Gillian Armstrong. And, you know, the, those sort of AFC, like, sort of these prestige pictures. But then Wake and Fright also exists in the sort of the sphere of, like, what, you know, Quentin Tarantino caught, coined as Ozploitation. Yeah. Like, it's a film that sort of exists in both of those worlds. Yeah, definitely. It's sort of like, I don't know, it, it definitely has elements of which you then would see in all the Ozploitation films, you know, like the sequences of them in the car with the rifles and... Certain mm. iconography from those films, yeah. Yeah, specifically like this very isolated town where like this, this sort of outsider comes in. So it's sort of like this really bizarre sort of Western trope that's it sort of flipped on its head in a way where yeah. it's definitely not like the heroic sort of thing where it's like that. But it reminds me of something like, you know, I mentioned Peter Weir earlier, but it, like this sort of town, uh, Bundan Yabba, reminds me a little bit of the town in The Cars That Ate Paris. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And like... Yeah, I guess also if you're trying to talk to someone who's outside of Australia, you know, I guess the best reference point for the film would be like Deliverance. You know, that very similar like group of dudes, you know, stuck in this hellhole area, Mother Nature just spitting them out. And, you know, they uh, <laughs> go for a lot of shit. Yeah. It does what, you know, Australian, great Australian films the next 50 years on would do would be, you know, establishing the environment almost as a character. Like the best Australian films are ones that make that either showcase like the beauty or the horror of the natural environment, the very alien sort of environment, like incredibly, incredibly well. Oh yeah. 
oh yeah like the you just feel the hate like the like when i was watching when i was really watching it it's like you literally could feel the sweat just dripping off your screen as you're watching yeah. it it's it might be one of the sweatiest films ever made oh yeah easily <laughs> and, the, and the, the, the fact that nobody i don't think anybody drinks a glass of water at all times so i think donald pleasant's character at one point says yabba water's only for washing mate here we drink beer <laughs> <laughs> yeah and it's like yeah and also it just has to do with color palette too it's like it's just just always oppressive orange and yellows and that it's just yeah you, you you're literally just thirsty as you're watching it <laughs> Mm. But as we were just saying just before we were recording, so we're going to jump around a lot here because, as I said, this is the pilot episode of this podcast series. I'm not quite sure. Hopefully this somehow establishes a structure. Um, haven't really talked to, talked a lot about it. But it's almost because we didn't actually... This is a film that almost was nearly lost. And, like, you yes. know a little bit more about this than I do, but to think that, like, you know, this seminal piece of Australian cinema was almost lost forever... And like it wasn't until like I guess someone found it on the brink of it being destroyed and like took it to the National Film and Sound Archive and they you know got it restored and you know back to its former glory. Yeah. Uh, so pretty much, yeah. What happened was was um, the editor of the film, Anthony Buckley, he uh, started searching around mid nineties. No, he was trying to look for a better preserved copy or like the negative, hopefully. And yeah, uh, eight years later, after 1994, he then found the <laughs> the, the the negatives of Wake and Fright in a shipping container, literally labeled for destruction. Like it was only like a couple of weeks away from like actually like just being incinerated. You know, the rosebud at the end of Citizen Kane. Like <laughs> this this incredible piece of art, just. But thankfully, they found it, and yeah, they took it to the archive and then restored it. Yeah, but I keep... It's interesting, do you know if there, it was longer? If there actually are things that are missing? Because if you look at the run times, there's like three or four different run times for this film, depending on where you look online. I'm going to double-check IMDb just to make sure like there are no like alternative versions, but like the one that I watched specifically on Stan, uh, I think it was like uh, an hour and 42 minutes... Or, and it may be an hour and 44. IMDb says one hour 49, and Google says two hours dead. So <laughs> it's, I, I wonder if there was anything that sort of got lost uh, within that. Maybe, maybe there was more of the kangaroo stuff, perhaps. Yeah, perhaps. We'll, we'll they, get... might have, they might have cut it for like rating reasons, perhaps. I don't know. But, um, yeah, and it's always interesting too because we talk about this being the seminal classic, but like it was lost for quite a long time. No one really had access to it outside of like shitty VHS. So yeah, that's yeah why preservation is important. Otherwise, yeah. you know, possibly the greatest Australian film just wouldn't exist. The only yeah, I'm just looking at IMDb now. The only sort of alternate version that happens is that there's an international TV version that until you know the the restoration it replaced the uncut australian version in circulation that runs approximately 100 and 101 minutes but then you know because of N ntsc and pal conversion like there's it loses a couple of minutes there and they say it's you know eight minutes shorter than the original and there is also a list of changes there if you want to go check them out i'm not going to yeah read i'm looking at it them. right now yeah it's um yeah i i'd, I'd feel like i remember these scenes from the rewatch the other day so yeah so yeah they must have just been 
I guess, yeah, it must have partly been raiding type stuff as well. Like, yeah, well, one one of them is literally the fact that like John after the the morning after the two up game where he loses all his money is like he wakes up nude in the, yeah. in, the in most versions, but in this version that they're talking about, he wakes up in underpants. So that might have just been you know like a rating <laughs> thing. Of course, yeah, yeah. As I said earlier. Like this, we're probably not going to go like detail by detail, like chronologically through the plot here. We're probably just going to jump all over the place because that's kind of, I mean, if the film is fairly straightforward, but the events that sort of happen, I guess, are really, really chaotic. And yeah, it's pretty much like if you're going to give like a, a few words to describe the plot, it's he gets, he gets drinks from someone, gets drinks from another, gets, gets drinks more from drinks, another, gets more drinks, drinks, more drinks, more drinks. He's stuck. <laughs> specifically, specifically on this rewatch, what I did was I kept a tally of how many beers slash drinks that uh, John <laughs> that John Grant, the main character played by Gary Bond, uh, has in the film. Um, yep. I didn't. I, I tried to count the ones specifically on screen, but then also when they say, "Oh, come on, let's have another beer," and it will cut, I count that as another one. Just yeah. So in my final count for watching this. And I could have missed some, but what I got, I got on-screen beers was 21 and off at least another five off-screen. So that's 26 <laughs> beers that he has throughout the majority of this film. And I didn't even, and that's not even when I paused to try and like count how many empty beer cans there were and like in between shots, because I reckon there would have been much, much more if that was the case. Yeah. And the film, at least from what you can tell, because you don't really know the exact timeline. No, which is sort of intentional in terms of the film. It's like he hmm. deliberately feels like he's in a limbo. Sort yeah, of stuff. you think you think it's only like a couple of days, but it could be like weeks. <laughs> yeah, it could it could be weeks. Like, and it's really the effect of the film of like how disorienting the it, how disorienting like the sort of rest of the um you know the you know the, the sort of power that this town the the. You know, I'm explaining it badly, but it's sort of like the power that this sort of town has on you, <laughs> and it's basically, you know, it's like the 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 Hotel California thing. You can check out any time you like, but you can never leave. Yeah, yeah, it's basically yeah, you're stuck with him like in a limbo. It's just, <laughs> it's mm. you don't really. It's like, it's yeah, it's a few days, but it could easily be weeks. Yeah, it's sort of like that time loop yeah. thing you see in films like Edge of Tomorrow and that. It's like. Yeah. You see a certain amount, but it probably is a lot, lot longer than what's shown. Yeah. I probably should have said this at the start as well. We're going to go into full spoilers on this film as well, because yes. we're going to jump around all over the place in terms of plot details and just like other little things about the film. Uh, we're going to go into full on spoilers. So if you have not seen Wake and Fright, um, please go watch it. If Australian listeners, it is on Stan. So go watch it. Come back. Hit pause. Go watch the film. Then come back to us uh, for those... Oh. For those who have done it, welcome back. Um, um, oh, I was going to say, Aaron, watch it. Uh, Aaron hasn't seen it yet? Oh, my God. I don't think he's seen it. If you're listening to this, watch it. <laughs> I'm calling you out. <laughs> That's a good way to do it. You do it in the public forum. Absolutely. So, um, yeah, but the film sort of begins with, as we said, John Grant, who's our main character. He is notably in Kenneth Cook's book, is actually Australian, but here they've made the very, I'm assuming very deliberate change of making him English. Yeah. And so he's a, he's a teacher that's teaching in the very, very, very remote little town of Tabunda, 
Like, this town is literally just dirt, a school, and a pub. And yep. a train station. The train station is literally just a tiny wooden platform. That's it. There's yeah. no conductor because it's, you know, literally, like, it's like two by two meters. It's And it's, like, elevated to, like, I don't know, not very high at all. Yeah. You you did not want to miss a train there. <laughs> yes. And I, I, it's just, I just love as well, like, that, that opening establishing shot. Like, it's not showing a whole lot because you just, it just, I mean, it does in terms of just, like, how isolated this oh, tiny yeah. little town is. Mm, yeah it's like it's expansive but you're trapped yeah it's it's real it's very effective at sort of capturing like you know yeah you may think you there's a lot land but like you know you see those little those little buildings and Mm. it's like no this is all you're gonna have unless you want to die yeah even the first we see of grant as well like him just we just we get to see him as like the final minutes of because it's the end of the school year basically and what i i think this is one of the best films i've seen that like captures that sense of an australian summer yeah yeah i guess and, but also the fact that there's just Christmas trees everywhere. So, like, stop all the stupid goddamn uh, debates about Die Hard being a Christmas movie. <laughs> Wake and Fright is a Christmas movie. Because it's yes. just, it, it just, you know, it's just this sweltering hot Australian summer. You know exactly what time of year it is. Not, mm. not only because of the Christmas trees and all the Christmas decorations around, like, this schoolhouse everywhere, but just from, like, this almost tangible sort of heat. It's like, I, I'd love to see this in a cinema and then I'd imagine them just turning the heat all the way up. Like, if there was like a Awake and Fright 4D experience, which, I mean, oh, God forbid if that ever happened. A, a, a 4D experience. A, a, beer. A, a 4D experience is just a pub, mate. Yeah, I was going to say. They, they, um, hand, they hand you a rifle at one point and then just kangaroo targets appear on the screen. It's like laser, t- it's like kangaroo laser tag. And they hand you a beer every five minutes. Oh, God. Yeah. <laughs> What's in the film already makes you sweaty enough? If you actually were to be sweaty during it, then God bless you. Yeah, I'm glad that I watched it in winter. Because, Damn. yeah. I, 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 think, I felt it. I think both times I've watched this, I've watched it in either like April or May. <laughs> so right when the weather is just about to get cold. But oh, yeah, yeah, so Grant is into Bunda. It's his last day. It's it's his last day of teaching, and just like this first sort of few minutes you see of him, he's just him and his students are basically just sitting in the classroom waiting for knockoff time to happen. Yeah, just so that they can both be out of there. Which is a great little bit because like it just it, it, you you can't exactly explain why, but there's just sort of this immediate tension or like uneasiness in that, even though it's very casual. Yeah, it's like. Mm. You know, it's like, oh, this is weird. Why is everyone so quiet? And it's just, it's like one of those great little moments to offset you for the rest of the film. Yeah, which is pretty much what the whole, the film, a lot of the film does. It's just that uneasy tension between Grant and other people around him. All the other people. And that kind of leads into, I think, the specific change of making Grant English in this film, Mm. as opposed to like, you know, the original novel where he's just Australian, is the fact that, like, specifically English makes him, I guess it's, you know, it's the English stereotype of them being, I guess, very pompous and very, like, arrogant about, like, where they stand in, like, society. And, like, especially within Australia as as well, like, that sort of, I guess, that very sort of colonial sort of arrogance. Oh, yeah. And I imagine, imagine too, they probably made him British as partly from, like, a financing perspective. Like, oh, if we have a British person as the 
point of view instead of it just yeah. being Australians, there might be more appeal. Well, I don't, I don't really know Gary Bond from too much more, and I think he actually passed away not too long after this film, or maybe like in the eighties, I think. So, I, I'm not quite sure if Gary Bond was like a huge name, and they changed him just because he was an English actor. So uh, be... he died in the nineties, actually. In the oh, nineties, okay. He was in Zulu, the Michael Caine right. one. And um, and actually, oh, actually, it was funny. I was watching uh, what was it? Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? The Mike Nichols one, and the younger guy of the young couple, and that sort of. I kept thinking it's Gary Bond because he just looks like him for some reason. So I don't know, but like, yeah, he uh, didn't do too much yeah, outside like, of Do- Donald Pleasance is probably the bigger, you know, the bigger get for this film. Oh, and yeah. like what I, you know, I'm always critical kind of critical of like you know just hire these people to do their own accents like unless they're going like super 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 campy with it Mm. and like they want to go like really over the top and like have the accent to match but donald pleasance's australian accent is pretty damn great oh yeah (laughs) and also in any imperfections in the accent sort of is like smoothed by the fact he's sort of odd like there's sort of an odd type of tone to the character so i think and if work. you want if you want someone that is the perfect mix of like real like a real actor with like pure gravitas but then can also go full camp it's yeah. Donald Pleasance. Donald Pleasance. He, you know, because he, like yeah, he's always like, you know, he's just, you know, naturally great at playing villains, you know, like whether it's Blofeld in like, you know, you only live twice or like, you know, not necessarily he's not a villain in Halloween but like Loomis is like yeah. this very sort of, you know, serious but also very campy character. Oh, yeah, he's very campy, but he just, like, he makes you believe the character, no matter mm. how ridiculous he may come off. Or, like, yeah, he has very, like, theatrical monologues in that film, but, like, mm. you just buy it because Donald is just so good at that. Yeah, like, similar with him in um, Carpenter's Prince of Darkness as well, which is probably the most serious character in that film, but, you know, he also brings that sort of, that heightened quality to that, you know, this priest sort of character in that movie. Mm. And here is, like, this sort of disgraced doctor that's like you know lost his medical license and has just like moved to this place and has just sort of surrendered to the chaos that is this place like gets by on like no like with no money like he's completely detached himself from like like the uh, the very concept of society almost oh yeah it's like and also a key thing too is that he's like you know at first he seems like he's just one of the crazy people there but then you slowly realize oh he is pretty much like john like 50 or like 30 yeah. years in the future it's like this is what you will become if, if you... you do not leave <laughs> yeah <laughs> but yeah he sort of can switch between the yeah he, he basically he code switches a lot throughout the film that's pretty much sort of how i look at it it's like yeah. when he's with the bogans he knows what how to act you know yeah act that particular but, way yeah, but then He's, a, he's an educated man, yeah. He's an educated man, but also one who's been succumbed to <laughs> the badness of Yuppie. Yeah, he yuppie knows yuppie. how to survive this, you know, he knows how to survive this place. Oh, and yeah. that is to just, to drink. To drink, <laughs> to, to, and, to drink and just act bogan. <laughs> exactly. And, you know, he does that so, so goddamn well. I, his character, I think he, he is definitely the most compelling character in the whole film. Oh, yeah, definitely. It's Next like... To, him and probably poor Jeanette. Oh. Poor Jeanette. And, like, you <laughs> see, and through Jeanette, you see, like, Jeanette, who I believe is the daughter of the person that, uh, I can't remember what his name is, that, you know, uh, I think he meets at the bar and, like, you know, takes him in. 
Oh, I love that scene between him and the bar. It's like, have a beer, mate. I'm flat broke and I can't drink. I didn't say you had to pay for your drink. I was going to yeah. buy you a drink. Yeah, and it's like, and like also it it comes in towards the end where like he finally rejects like being that, and it's like you take so much offense. Like Australians is like you'll you'll rape your wives, you'll like kill all these animals, but the thing you're most offended by is not is is basically you know refusing to have a drink with with them. Yeah, which is like such an on on the nose line, but like it is true. Mm. And it's like, you know, like those sorts of things. It's like, oh, have a drink, mate. It's a very, very, and like what I think is so fascinating about this film is like how it's sort of, at the beginning, it sort of presents like this very sort of, I guess what a lot of, to what outsiders would see is this very sort of lovable, you know, sort of, I guess, stereotype of an Australian person. But then how it inverts that through the rest of the film and just how deeper and much darker it goes into like, you know, the lives of these guys. Oh yeah, it really it, just presents something really, really dark. Yeah, if you're not Australian, you're sort of like, oh, these guys are lovely. Any Australian watching it, oh, oh no, leave, yeah. leave, don't get stuck with these people. Yeah, this should be uh, for any um, you know incoming. I know it won't happen for a while now because of the COVID situation and whatever, and until that settles. But like, whenever like people are coming on holiday or like moving to Australia, just on like the Qantas flight over, just um. It should just be on, just wake in fright. Just, it's like the one thing, yeah, while completing your visa application, like to do that sort of thing in Australia, you also have to watch wake in fright. Yes. <laughs> yeah. You're just, do not, do not, probably, probably preferable to refuse a yeah. drink because otherwise if you do, then you're just going to get caught in a purgatory hell. Yeah. So back, back to the plot, but just to try it. So he's leaving Tabunda. Uh, you wanted to briefly mention the bar or, the, you know, the, ho- the hotel that um, in Tabunda with the, the scene with the bartender where he has his first of 21 drinks. Oh, uh, yeah. Grand. So the first scene where he's at a bar, you know, and it's only just him and the bartender and like, you know, um, he asked for a beer and then the bartender has one with him because of course. Yep. And there's just this great little moment where the bartender just skulls down his drink, and then you just see John just very gently just, mm. just you know, drink it like very responsibly. And it's just it's a great little moment that just is pretty much like the summary of the entire film. Like it just tells you everything you need to know about this character, what the film's about, and you know, like the tensions you will have with the people around him. It's just such a great little bit of writing. Mm. So he's leaving Tabunda, gets on the train. Um, he's on his he's on his way to Sydney to go back. To, you know, because he's on it's he's got six weeks of holidays, so he's going to go back to Sydney with his girlfriend. Um, but then he gets basically on a train, like you know, is while waiting for his flight the next morning, he has to make a stop in Bundanyaba, which, as we've said, is very very obviously meant to be Broken Hill. It's this mining town in like you know country New South Wales. That's like much closer to Sydney than Tabunda is, but you know, it's still still in itself very, very, very isolated. Yes, indeed. You do not want to be stuck there, as this film will show yeah. you. It's one of these like I remember like I've grown up, you know, there's I'm from as I've said before, I'm from Shepparton, which is two hours out of Melbourne. Like it's still a, it's a pretty big regional hub, so it's not as isolated as a lot of these other places, but like all of the sort of rural towns around it that are just, you know very much like there's like they have one of five things in their town like there's a footy oval there's a milk bar slash post office there's a pub there's a primary school and there's one main road and that's that's the whole town and there's like 
maybe like i guess like 1000 people that live in that town yeah pretty much and and like the, a lot of people from these towns that say like oh the only two things to do here is drink beer and play sport so like what else are you gonna do so and if they don't play and we don't see any sport in wake and fright so well, you what? do, you do see drinking. a for, you do see a former sport just yeah well oh yeah yeah brace, <laughs> your, brace yourself for that because yeah, it, it's the thing that this film is very often remembered by and probably for good reason and probably also for very very bad reasons as well yes which is hmm. yeah I, I i don't know if we're going to go into that yet but no. yeah we're gonna, we're gonna need at least an hour on that i think so yeah he first comes into bundan yabba or the yabba as everyone calls it and everyone who's living there i mean we should say firstly it's mostly men like i think there's only oh. two women in the entire film yeah uh, the, the, the aforementioned re- jeanette and then there's the receptionist at the hotel yes yeah, so- i mean my favorite bit like my favorite bit character in this because i mean it just also adds to the feeling of the sweltering heat that is happening here because the receptionist she's always got the fan on she's always rubbing herself with water to cool her down and then sticking in front of the fan it's just such a great little detail oh just, yeah and she does it really odd too almost like seductively almost she's yeah. just like, oh. <laughs> and she's moving very it's also like moving very slowly because it's so hot like and her performance is over the top in that regard but you know it really captured this sense of like of atmosphere that oh yeah has. oh yeah that's one of the best things about the film is just it establishes atmosphere and like location immediately just for all these great little details in the mise-en-scene yeah and like almost immediately you see just how much of an outsider grant is as soon as he gets to bundan yabba because like everyone from like i think the cab driver driving him in it's like oh how long you staying for don't you love the yabba it's like you gotta love this place it's the greatest place on earth i think at one point they said oh yeah nobody minds who you are or where you come from as long as you're a good bloke you're all right Yes. Which is, you you find out later, isn't exactly, it's their idea of a good bloke, which is something completely different, as we'll find out later in the film. And also, John just wearing this really fancy suit and all that, and everyone's just in these very casual clothes. Yeah, they've all just come from working in the mines, so they're all, you know, they're incredibly sweaty and dirty. And then he goes into the bar, the biggest bar I've ever seen in the world, like, there's like there's like 10 bartenders w- w- working within it there's like so much space within the bar i didn't see like too many actual shelves within it either like it's all like hanging around like on top of the actual bar itself it's just it's massive i'm like i'm pretty sure like it's a, probably a now closed bar but my god it was just either great yeah great location scouting for this bar here Oh, yeah, and it's just, it's like, it may be the biggest bar you've ever seen, but my God, do they fit as many extras as possible? <laughs> so many people inside the bar when you first go in there. It's like, oh, God. It's, yeah, that's something the film does really well. It's like the second he walks into that pub, he's just like, he's all squashed up. He can't move yeah. around. Everyone's, and there's those great shots of like all the beers just getting filled, almost like a factory. You know, just all yeah, these great it's like, like, like it's details. an assembly line almost. Oh yeah, and, and it's like it, you haven't even finished your beer, and they're or people are already offering you another one, which is where we meet the uh, Chips Rafferty's character, which is uh, the police officer. I can't remember what his rank was, but his name is Jock, Jock, Jock or Jack. I think it's Jock, Jock Crawford. Yeah, that's, yeah. That's, that's what his name is, yeah. Gives us a little bit more into the town of Bundan Yabba, and I've got a little quote here. He says it's the on- most honest, honestest, I think he used honestest, 
instead yeah. of mode, which is you know, you know, adds adds to it. And he says it's the honestest little town in Australia. Even if people you know want to escape, there's nowhere to go. Well, <laughs> I don't think says... those are the exact words, but yeah, he's basically you know just em- emphasizing more the isolation of this place. Oh yeah, and very casually so. <laughs> And like, there's also that great thing of like Chips Rafferty on set. It's like he was willing to actually drink actual point uh, schooners and that during set on set. And like the director was like, "Mate, you're going to be drinking so many beers during shooting." He was like, "You do the directing, yeah, I'll do the drinking." We're, we're Australian, mate. You, you forget. I think he had like over thirty drinks over like a two day shoot. Oh my was god! <laughs> so was it was it only Chips Rafferty that was doing it, or was like everyone? Ah, uh, that's another. Because was know. it like Dazed and Confused where like everyone on that set was drinking real alcohol? <laughs> or on Mamma Mia, but not yeah. <laughs> like for the film. <laughs> but like, yeah, the, I think many of them probably would have been drinking actual beer. But yeah, yeah, particularly Chips because he only has like a couple scenes but he also is drinking. So like every take he was actually drinking real beers. So like if you're doing many takes for each setup, it's like price. The amount of beers you would be mm. having would be ridiculous. Yeah. So then after we meet that, he, we go to the other, we go from the world's biggest bar to the RSL, like the very Australian thing of the RSL, which is, which it must be, but it doesn't make, I mean, this might've been before two up was outlawed, I guess, because you know, they're playing two up. They can only do that on Anzac day. Yeah. Yeah. Um, But then even just the RSL, like everyone's drinking, but then like they, (laughs) everyone stops when there's the, the call to have, you know, the the ode to the the ode to the Anzacs. I can't remember what the thing is. You know, the week. Less we forget. Yeah, yeah. That, that everyone stops to pay their respects. So it's like, but even after that, like everyone very respectfully stops, but then like back to drinking. Oh yeah, that's such a great little moment too. It's just like the red lighting. It's very. It's sort of like very moody type lighting, and it's just all these shots. Like everyone's just like a statue, and it's just like. You know, particularly if they're not Australian, you know, that scene will just feel weird. But then anyone who's here will be like, oh, yeah, that's yeah. what everyone does. But yeah, and then it's just immediately cha-ching, ching Yeah, everyone's, yeah, just everyone's getting back on the beers. I think he's on about six at this point. Yes. <laughs> I think in terms of the beer count. And then that's, we get... That's so, how you narratively track the film is how many beers he's had. Yeah. So we're up to six beers. So, somewhere up to that, but now we're up to the two, like probably I think one of the most iconic scenes of the film, which is the two up sequence. Oh, yeah. Firstly, he goes to get a steak, but while his steak's being made, his steak only costs a dollar, which, oh my God, the 70s. Oh, Can yeah. you imagine? <laughs> oh, that sounds good. <laughs> That's something also the film, it made, the <laughs> film made me momentarily hungry. I was like, oh shit, I really want to eat something. Uh, there's not as much smoking in this movie as I remembered. It's just all drinking. Mostly, think, there's not too jo- much smoking. I think John's the one that smokes a lot. Now thinking about it, I think he's the one that smokes the most in the film. I believe, like he always. I think John often has a smoke whenever he's like, like by himself or whatever. If I remember correctly, but um, yeah, not as much smoking, just all drinking. <laughs> hmm. So yeah, he learns the. So then he learns the art of betting on two up, which for anyone I guess outside of Australia is a game that I guess was you know, very popular in like, you know, the World War Two, I know World War One, I, I should say. It's basically two pennies get put on a little wooden board and basically you have to call if they're heads or tails. Uh, and, you know, you put money on whether it's going to be heads or tails. You flip it up in the air 
you know, both he- both have to land on heads, both have to land on tails for you to win. If you get one of each, you have to throw it back up again. Basic rules of two up, basically. But yeah. what, what I'm always fascinated with, but just how much chaos is happening, is just how civil it actually is. Like, oh, especially yeah. when it's just people, like, throwing wads of cash on the ground. <laughs> it's like no one's just going in and just grabbing it. Like, there's a weird level of civility going on. Oh, yeah, it's very c- civil, and it's like... Yeah, even like when John starts to go in, like starts to join betting. Yeah, it's not like as if the outs- the Australians are like, oh no, we don't want you betting. It's like, nah, mate. Oh, give yeah, me cash. Like, get in. We'll have your money. I'll take your money. Sure thing. And it's a great scene because it actually like it's actually a really happy scene, so to speak. It's like you actually hmm. really get excited in that because yeah, he's winning the bets. Uh, and you know he's getting money and everyone's cheering and it's like it feels great (laughs) which is such a great little moment to mislead the audience before everything else happens yeah and i mean this is where like it's the film really starts to get disorienting with you know how the film is shot especially particularly this scene as well because it's interesting you never actually like there's never actually ever a close-up on the coins to show you if they're heads or tails like it's all really from a distance and then whenever they're thrown up like the camera like almost zooms into the lights oh yeah it's great and it's like yeah you don't really see the results you always you just have to base off what like how people are yeah responding which is a great little moment to really give you like make you in john's perspective it's like oh okay it seems like this went well And at this moment, like earlier, John described himself as an indentured slave to the education system. And he basically, he basically just said, like, we get, we, we basically have, you know, there's like a thousand dollar bond over us. And like that, you know, they just ship us anywhere to teach. Mm. But like, you know, I'm stuck here. Unless I get my thousand dollars, I can pay myself out and then just leave this job forever. So he's, yeah. he's started to get a bit of a run on with two up. Mm. So I think what I think what happens I think he gets to like eight hundred dollars and he's like I just need one more I just need one more yeah so he goes back and you know goes back and then like this this whole thing in my notes here I've got the the camera once again zooming into the lights as soon as the you know the coins are thrown up it's as almost as if you know when he starts to lose money it's almost as if like you know it's he's like staring at the headlights of something about to come crashing into him oh yeah it's oh yeah and it's just like oh okay now everything this is where everything goes wrong this is where everything goes wrong we wake up as as we said earlier he wakes up nude in his uh in the hotel that he's staying in he has just um he's completely broke he checks out of his hotel but he he gets his dollar back from the bond Mm -hmm. his key he gets his so he's got one dollar for the rest (laughs) of the movie he's got one dollar so he's lost all the money he's just got one dollar and I can't even remember what happens next. I know just before the two-up scene, which is where he meets Doc, and yeah. he talks, you know, he basically says like all these pre like he's Doc is so fascinating because like he he's also has this idea of like talking down to these people, but he's also you know rec- like you know acknowledges that he's one of them. Oh, like yeah. he's basically like he doesn't say the word like savages or anything, but he's like these proud these people are all proud to be living in hell. Oh, yeah. And like they've just like you know accepted it and have just tried to make the most out of it. Yeah, and it's great too because you think Chips is going to be the one that's like leading the character throughout, and then it's like, oh no, Doc is the one that's going to be his guide throughout all of this. So that's a nice little like, because you know when you first see Chips, you know you sort of feel like, oh okay, this is the character he's going to be 
like his guide you know through mm. this town and then he he meets doc and it's like oh thank god i've met someone like me yeah yeah like him but not in the way you want him to be no sort of like a mirror of like what's what's to come I've got to double check what the name of this character is because I think this is where he meets um oh god what was his name he, he goes he goes into the bar he you know he goes into the bar like this is where you were talking about he's like I'll oh, have a drink I don't have any money he takes him back to his place oh god I'm just trying to find where this is but 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 yeah, Tim Hines Tim yeah. Hines is this character's name he's played by Al Thomas who you know. Yeah, it takes him back to his place, which is where he meets his daughter, Jeanette, who we've basically said is, like, one of the only women in this movie, and, like, basically shows another sort of person that feels outsider and, like, you know, has aspirations to be more and do more and see more of the world and not be stuck here because, you know, she is treated like absolute shit. Yeah. Oh, yeah, she's, she's sort of treated as, like, the town slut or whatever. Yeah. You know, the, but it's like, you know... There's nothing for else to her to do. Like she's stuck. Like you, know, you can't and really, you can't really judge her for anything. No, like, ab- she's, she's... absolutely not. And because you know, some people, oh, I was gonna say, like, and now she sees someone that you know she resonates with, someone who wants to get out. And then also, like, you know, him being a foreigner as well. Like, it's there's some excitement in her life for once. Yeah. Like she's some, she's met someone that's more interesting than just a beer swilling bogan. So. <laughs> Yeah, and there's also that great little there's those great moments of like blocking and you know, where it's like you know the guys and that will be at the table and then John will be with her just in the background of yeah. the couch and, and then like always... one of them I believe it's uh, Dick the character played by you know one of I think I believe one of the first roles from the great Jack Thompson yeah um, yeah I think he's like he'd rather talk to a woman than hang out and have a beer with us who the hell is he oh yeah it's just it's just yeah and it's great too with her character because like. You know, you sort of, you were the two up saying, you sort of think, oh, this is such a great little community. Then you have another outsider to sort of see like, oh, no. Nope, this, yeah, this is they're pretty awful. bad. Yeah, they're, they're awful people. <laughs> so then they go, yeah, Jeanette and John, like, you know, go for a walk together. And, you know, they, you know, they try to have, you know, they try to have sex with each other. But then, yeah. uh, John, because of excessive <laughs> alcoholism, kind of throws up and ruins the mood. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, which is, is it something I've had in my notes, actually. It's like any time he, he's just about to connect with someone in the film, yeah. it goes wrong. It goes terribly wrong. <sighs> yeah. It's like, oh, there might be the someone I can finally connect with in this place. No, I ruin it because yeah. it's <laughs> too re- much it's- alcohol. It's really the beginning of his downward spiral is this moment right here. I mean, it, it was it was losing all his money, like, but he's like, you know, I can still try and... He still had a bit of hope that he could do something now, but now here is where it's... You know, he, he missed his he missed his train to Sydney. Yeah. The, the morning of the, that day. So now he's, he's just kind of... It's the beginning of his downward spiral now, which is where I believe he wakes up in Doc's house. Yeah. Oh wait, no, no, no. So no, they go back to the house and Doc is drinking. No, they do. They do more drinking. Sorry, because Doc is doing a headstand and he's yeah. drinking and he's like, it's not the gravity that's doing it. It's peristalsis. <laughs> the, move, oh, the, the movement of liquid down the throat. <laughs> oh yeah, and they have the what is it? They bring the doggy in and they do. They start messing around with the dog. And it's also one of the first scenes where you really can see like Donald's character sort of like trying to blend in with 
the mates, yeah. and, you know, he's sort of speaking all the, the sausages. He's, he's always been on the outside up until this moment. Like in the two up scene, he's just in like the bistro area of the RSL, just like, you know, sitting there drinking a beer, eating a steak. Mm. Yeah. So yeah. I think the it, first time you really see him in amongst the rest of the crew. It's like you think, oh, okay. So he's not just a John type. He's, he can mm. actually blend in with these people pretty well. And also, it's like the first hint of like Jeanette's, uh, you know, interactions, shall we say, with the other guys. You know? mm. So they're all like, yeah, like Jack Thompson's character is like. There's one moment where they do like where he's sort of mirroring her, like she's trying to get out of his way, but he like keeps getting in her way. Mm. And then yeah. like you know, like you know, staring at her as she walks off in a very, very inappropriate manner. Oh, and all that yeah. Sort of- it's, it's just that's really the, it's a great saying it's just like you're immediately just establishing all the really uncomfortable dynamics that like the two up scene sort of misleads you into thinking there won't be you know because everyone's all happy and cheery and then they're saying oh no <laughs> yeah it's like a horror movie you know you're like oh get out get out get out yeah well, and then, so the next scene where we see, um, I was, was going to say Gary, but that's the actor's name, but when we see John Grant wake up in uh, in where Doc is living, you see, like, you think he's a little bit more, Doc, even though he's a very sophisticated man that's, you know, trying trying to blend in, when you see his living conditions, you're like, okay, no, he's uh, he might be the leader and, like, the most sort of, like, recluse and insane of like all of these people because he's basically squatting in like this this tin shed he yeah. said like my, this is where like he goes on his big speech of like oh money is of no value to me like and he talks about like oh, i'm a disgraced doctor lost my medical license people here trust me just because i'm educated mm. all that oh. sort of stuff he fe- he feeds him ca- he feeds um john john some kangaroo for the first time which you know he's not too have you eaten kangaroo, by the way? I don't think that I have. I don't think I have, no. Nah, I, I, I don't think I have. But yeah, it, in, the film does a very good job of just making it look disgusting as hell. Yeah. And it's like, I mean, like the most, like the most, like the best food he has is just a loaf, a bit of bread, like in his fridge or whatever. That's like yeah. the most pleasant looking food that you see in his house. Yeah. He's desperately looking for water. At this point, John is like, I need some water. And this is where, you know, he says, uh, Doc says the aforementioned line, the Yabba water's only for washing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it's just, that probably plants a seed in John's mind of like, oh, no, I'm going to have to just drink my entire yeah. way through this. Yeah. And like, you know, he's desperate to get out. It's like, no, don't you, you don't want to go anywhere because we're about to go on a hunt. We're about to go roo shooting. Which is where we get to the film, the most infamous and most talked about scene of this entire film, because oh, I'm probably going to explain it badly, so I'm going to leave this to Liam. Okay. So yeah, pretty much him, uh, him, Doc, John, Doc. Uh, Joe and Dick. Yeah, Tim Hines and all that. Oh, I don't think Tim does. No, it's just basically the mates. <laughs> the yeah. mates that we see earlier. They all go on a kangaroo hunt. And uh, first off, it sort of starts off in the day, you know, like they're just chasing down these kangaroos. And, you know, a key element of why the scene's so infamous is that they actually did kangaroo hunting because they yeah. needed footage in that of actual kangaroo hunting. You know, this isn't... Yeah. They didn't have, like, you know, visual effects or anything to do this sort of stuff. And, mm-hmm. yeah, and that's part of why it's infamous because, like, there's definitely... An, a, a sort of a moral 
an ethical problem of actually killing kangaroos for your film, but like, yeah, you know, it clearly must have been the only way they've been able to. So yeah, they shot all this footage, and the director actually is a vegetarian also, so it was particularly uncomfortable. And it got to the point where he actually staged a power outage so that they couldn't. Oh um, wow, really? Yeah, he, he him and a couple guys were just like, no, nah, we can't keep doing this. This is awful. What so the they turned they they took the power out um, of the lights and such, so they couldn't hunt anymore. And um, yeah, so they had that footage, and then they just filmed the actual scenes of the guys in the car um, actually hunting them down. And it's just, yeah. and they go, they have a little break at a pub and then it gets in the night, which is where it just yeah. becomes nightmarish. It's like actually like feeling, it's like you're actually in hell. You know, it's just awful to watch. Yeah. You know, they start beating up the kangaroos, punching yeah. them. Specifically when they actually start like wrestling the kangaroos and like getting up close and like, you know, getting in there with the knives yeah, which like I, I don't think they actually use kangaroos for that. Yeah, I don't God. think they did either, but like... <laughs> you can tell that what they filmed separately for the kangaroo hunk is often like long distance shots and such. But it's just the way it's edited, the, the music, and it's just, it's really, the, it's genuinely, I think, one of the most horrifying scenes in all cinema. It's really uncomfortable to watch. You know, well, you, actually, you actually see these kangaroos getting shot and it's yeah. just... And they're laughing, and it's like, oh, yeah, yeah, Even when they're about to approach them, you can see just how battered and bruised and bloody these kangaroos are, even as soon as they get out to... Yeah, it's just, it's just, like, as I've said before, it's just a really horrifying sequence. It's like, you know, I... I don't think much horror movies could actually ever live up to the sheer terror of that sequence. Like, even if... I think even if you're someone who hunts, like, I think you can't deny there's something really uncomfortable about watching these kangaroos just getting hunted yeah. down. You know, there's that bit where the dog is, like, chasing one of them, you know, yeah, and it's oh, just, definitely. like, it's just, yeah, it's it's an infamous scene for a very good reason. For a very good reason, absolutely. Yeah. Like, the, the fact, uh, in my notes here, like, obviously, as you've said, these sequences are horrifying and just, like, chilling and incredibly incredibly upsetting like i'm of the reason like i still think this film is a masterpiece but like obviously i can like i kind of condemn the actions like i don't think any film is worth killing oh, no. any any for absolutely uh, not like like i think come and see is a brilliant brilliant piece of filmmaking i don't think a cow needed to be killed for that film to be made no i mean yeah and it's the same here the, that being said, though, the effect that this has, and this is in no way justifying well, the actions that, that happened on the set of this film by actually, you know, killing the kangaroos, which even at the time I think may have been considered pests. But regardless, I don't think they should have done it. It's yeah. just, but when you have to look at, when you look at this scene in isolation, yeah, it doesn't justify the slaughter of these animals. It is incredibly gratuitous, but the effect of it is just unmatched. Yeah, and I think so. Some like it's what they actually did is not very moral, but I do think at least it is for a scene that is meant to show how horrible it is. It's like anyone who comes out of that sequence, they're not going to think, "Oh, this is fun and cool." And no, it's just horrible. It's like you know, you actually see him getting shot, and yeah, yeah. I don't think any animal should go should be should be done like it shouldn't be done to animal just for a film but you know obviously we can't do we can't reverse that or change that no. so you sort of just have to grapple with that so yeah it's 
Oh, yeah, I read the first time I watched it. I was just like, holy shit. This is... <laughs> I, like, I don't normally... Like, I think there was a moment where I actually nearly turned it off for a moment because, like, I actually had to, like... It was just really horrible to watch. Yeah, it's 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 incredibly, incredibly full on. And I think in my during my rewatch, one of my housemates and like his friend came over and it was right in that sequence. So like I was hitting the pause button. I was like, I was I needed to hit the pause button immediately, but I'm like, I do not want to pause this on a really horrifying frame. So I'm gonna wait until like it's just the car driving. <laughs> And th- there wasn't too many shots of that, unfortunately. So, like, yeah. I had to time it perfectly to try and pause it. So, oh. like, just until, like, they left the house. Oh. <laughs> oh, yeah. That, that's happened to me before. It's like, oh, I need to pause it during a horrible scene when my parents are coming in. Oh, no, it pauses on the worst possible moment. But, um, yeah, I think, yeah, I think if, you know, I, we definitely implore people to watch it, but, like, if that sort of thing yeah. you just can't watch, like, I wouldn't ask you to go through it just to watch it. Yeah, I, I, I'm, yeah, it's definitely not this, I, I'm not saying watch the film for this scene, that is absolutely not Oh, no, I'm no, I, I, I didn't yeah. mean that, it's just that if you're someone who can't watch that sort of thing, like, you know. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not going to begrudge you for not wanting to watch this film because of that. Yeah, yeah, it's because it is. Yeah, it is pretty horrible to watch. But so yeah. they they get there. They they kill all of these ruse. And what's what what is I think even more chilling about it? It's not just the fact that they're you know killing them. It's that they're gleefully killing them. Oh yeah, they're it's... like it, they're hunting them for sport basically, and it's like they're reveling yeah in like this of, of this destruction and you know this murderous activity yeah and that's such a key aspect of the film too is that they always are like happy and casual it's just that you see the happy and casual in many different contexts and mm. in sometimes very horrifying situations but they're still like oh hey mate oh, good on you mate yeah but they're, they're, they're like kangaroos. that. They're like that throughout the film, but like that gets elevated as soon as like there's a moment of like violence. Oh yeah. Like, it's like yeah, they they're reveling in this. It's like this is what they live for. Yeah, and there's also a really great moment where like they uh throw the kangaroo in the back of the car, and you see that little bit of blood just spill on John, and it's just like you, he slowly realizes, oh crap, this like what have I got myself into? Yeah. Well, even he's, like, especially in this scene with John's character, like, he begins like that, is like, what the hell am I doing? But then by the end of it, he's, like, on the same level as everyone else. Oh, yeah. Like, he's, he begins to, you know, relish in what he's doing by the yeah. end of the scene. I don't know the exact runtime, but I'm pretty sure that's, like, nearly, like, almost exactly halfway through, which is so perfect for, like, what the scene's like. It's, like... Yeah, you sort of gain these hints that these people do pretty terrible stuff. That turning point, literally like halfway through, is such so key for John to start to realize, oh, like uh, they, these people, <laughs> I shouldn't be here, and the, the stuff is just terrible. And then you know, but that's such a key part of his character too, is that it's not like he's the outsider just criticizing them he actually sort of joins in he starts to enjoy it yeah he's like embracing this very i think one of the first examples i can see in film i'm sure it's happened well before this but at least for my memory it's one of the first uh you know it's it's throughout movies that you see now but it's like one of the first examples or really like examinations of toxic masculinity like a very prominent example that i've seen in a film 
Oh yeah, and it's just yeah, it's, it's just that pack mentality that John yeah. succumbs to, and he slowly starts to realize, you know, particularly afterwards, like oh, I've like, like I've degenerated as a person morally, you know. Mm. I, I I've stooped to a new low. <laughs> yeah, well that that happens more in the next film in the next film. Sorry, in the next scene. Well, there is they they're all they all return like on the I think on the porch of the of the pub, I think. Yeah. And yeah. like their clothes, they start throwing like beer bottles and everything at them. Like I think Joe and uh Joe and Dick start getting into a bit of a punch on at this yeah. moment as well. And then like Doc is having a very big drunk musing about like how about like what his concept of a successful man is i think he mentions um what's his name socrates and then yeah. he keeps talking he, he about keeps, like yeah, yeah he, he keeps calling john socrates i think throughout the whole film yeah he just he just brings all these literary all these references to things and like these guys are just fighting behind them and then there's also a key part where like one of the guys during the fight actually starts getting really angry at the other and then you mm. slowly start to realize, oh, these people aren't just as casually friendly as they say they are. You know, that this alcohol is actually making them very aggressive and violent. So yeah, it's 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 definitely like yeah, and also the fact it's all set at night too. So like <clears throat> it's sort of like uh you really feel like the, the hellish aspect of it, you know. Yeah, 100% agree. So then I believe they go back to Doc's little, you know, dwelling, his tin shed there. Great little detail, Doc throws his jacket in the fridge. <laughs> oh, yeah. And also, <laughs> and actually that scene's great too because, like, I think I think that's the scene where, like, him and Doc, like, vaguely start having a hummer. Yeah, they're, they're, like, sort of, like, play wrestling with each other, but then it gets really sort of, like, it starts out a bit intense, and then it starts to, like, get a little bit more, I guess, for lack of a better better word, sensual, I guess. Mm. And then, like, it's kind of got, like, the Alfred Hitchcock thing of the swinging light. And, like, it's complete darkness other than just this light, this lamppost that's sort of just, like, swinging Oh, it's yeah. like lighting this entire scene. Yeah, it's like okay, this is the peak of the craziness of these people. <laughs> like they've yeah. they've gone insane. But yeah. like yeah, and then they have the homoerotic encounter, which sort of sort of touches upon the themes of sexuality, which is very key in the film. Yeah, like the, everyone here is very. I mean, because it's, from what we see, there isn't really many women, and the one yeah. woman that we do see is you know pretty much you know like you know, harassed for you know being a woman basically yeah yeah she's a horrible situation yeah like everyone in like everyone here is so sexually repressed specifically specifically john as well and doc yeah specifically those two though yeah it's uh, there's a great yeah there's that bit where like they're on top of each other and it's sort of like Mm. you know it gets it's yeah and they're just like a pink drunkness they're pretty much blacked out drunk at this point I mean, in my notes, I had heavily implied that they, you know, have sex, but I think it's quite clear that the whole cut to black, wake up the next morning, they're lying next to each other in in their underwear, I believe. I think oh, it, yeah. it's fair. I think it's pretty obvious what happened the previous night. Yeah, because yeah, that, the whole theme with the drinking of the film too was the idea of like these people touching their primitive nature, or sort of yeah. like their while that their their deepest urges sort of come out because of the because of the amount of alcohol they're drinking. 
I, I think it's also as well, like, I guess very, I guess, tangentially related to this. Uh, just, like, stop me if I'm just saying complete nonsense here, but I guess it's kind of also sort of implying now that, like, he's lost his... He's no longer, I guess... Again, for lack of a better word, like the alpha male, like he he began as this very hoity-toity sort of, you know, like very prominent sort of societal figure that believed he was, you know, that was very posh, very astute. And now he's very much stooped to this level. And now, you know, he's been, you know, basically, uh, I can't think of a word for it, but like. Yeah, he's it's been... sort of, he basically touched, he basically like lets out of the, a part of himself yeah. he probably, probably wishes wasn't there or didn't yeah. exist, but it does. You know, and I think also there's a key thing too with like there's that bit like the first time he's at Doc's place, and Doc sort of mentions like, "Oh, everyone wants Jeanette and whatever," mm. and you can vaguely tell John sort of judges her for that because I think John yeah. sort of saw her as like differently, yeah, yeah, because... this like this thing to desire, and then he saw her as, yeah. "Oh, she probably does that with everyone here." Yeah, he saw he basically saw her as like you know unique and you know interesting as like you know this per a person that actually has a personality outside of just drinking. Yeah, you know the only person in the town that really has that. But then you know Doc is like, "Oh yeah, we go way back," you know. Yeah, and, and she's I... done it with everyone, all that sort of stuff. And yeah, it's not the fact that like. I think it also speaks to how, like, he doesn't think about, like, he doesn't condemn, like, sort of Doc for doing that in his mind. He doesn't really change his opinions of Doc. It's her that he sort of, like, that yeah. that sort of knowledge excuse his opinion of her rather than him. Yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. Because he, yeah, thought that, you know, his thing with Jeanette was unique and only, the only thing. But then, you know, Doc sort of says that, you know. And also that's the thing with Doc, too, is that he's the one that makes the honest observations about things. You know, he sort of tells it like it is, so to speak. And mm. so, yeah. And then John's sort of like, oh, this, I thought what we had was unique. But no, she's in a horrible place in isolation. You know, any guy she'll, you know, any possibility of something outside of like all the drinking in that is, yeah. Yeah. So, very much, yeah. He basically, it sort of fuels sort of John's condescending view of these people. And, that. and so to the you know he sort of looks down upon these people and then he thinks Jeanette is sort of like you know, you know on like, his level on his level it's like oh no she's just she's always similar to Doc in that sense almost like she yeah. sort of knows how to blend in and like yeah but is unlike Doc who's like surrendered himself to it she's still hopeful and still you know like aspires to be more yeah 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 and so yeah that, it's a it's a key detail that John is sort of like, you know, oh, okay. I thought, you know, I thought, you know, she hates all this and, you know, she wants to get away from this. And it's like, you know, uh, uh, you know, she probably met someone very similar to John only like a couple of weeks ago, probably, you know. Mm. I wonder, do, do we ever get given a time frame of how long Doc has been at the ABBA? <sighs> I don't know. I think it was like six months i think because like i i'd imagine it would have been years and like but no but it's imagine it's i find that's an interesting sort of thought experiment to maybe have it's kind of like the groundhog day thing of like how long has uh bill murray how long has bill murray been living the same day over and over again i'm wondering how long has um how long has uh doc actually been there because it would make sense either way if he's been there for years or only you know, only a very short period of time. Only if it's been like you know six months or so. Yeah. Like it, it, in my head, either one is possible. Oh yeah, because that's sort of yeah, sort of the thing we've mentioned multiple times. Is like this is like limbo. You know, there's 
how to describe it you're sort of in a place that's always separate from time and such like it's just like this one eternal limbo that could either be a few weeks or could be years or could just be a couple of days you can't really tell because everything just feels the same every day mm. you know it's yeah you're, you you can't really tell how long you've been there and yeah like you say it's an interesting thing actually to think about like you know, how character how long would this character have been or how long would this character have been here but you can't really tell because they could have been there for a few weeks and you would believe that like they're in that state already mm. because like at the be- from what we see at the beginning like we only think john's been there for two days and we you know it already feels like he's been there for you know how he's sort of you know, how he's been degraded degraded i can't speak sorry you know how just how much he's degraded and like fallen into sort of the, this insanity that's happened what it feels like from what at least the film tells us is only a couple of days but yeah like this whole thing of time being sort of irrelevant and it's like a time it's a place where time ceases to exist like mm. you know this whole feeling of limbo to what you've said so at this point yeah john is basically he's just desperate to get out now like he's he just needs to get out and he'll he's he's doesn't doesn't care how he's gonna do it he just has to get out on his own he does take, I believe Doc does part, give him a parting gift of a rifle though. Uh, yeah. That might have been before the shoot actually, but because he need, might have needed his own gun for the Rue shoot, I think. Yeah, I can't I remember think so, exactly yeah. when he gives him the rifle. But um, to, to, as we said, to explain another film that came out that, that was released at the, well, that premiered at the very same Cannes Film Festival, Walkabout, uh, he kind of goes on Walkabout here. He, uh, yeah. he just wandering through the desert at one point, uh, he's hunts a rabbit and, you know, shoots it and eats it. Mm-hmm. He, try, he tries to find like the next closest town. Uh, he finds like a petrol station near that where he finds a guy with a semi trailer that says, can you take me to the city? And he's like, yeah, sure. We're heading there. Um, you know what, how much I need, I'll do it for $2. It's like, I only have one. And you know, he basically said, Oh, I've got a rifle here. Do you want this? So they do, you know, equal trade give you the yeah or give you the rifle i get i get a free rifle i'll just take this guy to the city he's i think he's he says the city implying sydney so that's so the great thing is it's a great horror movie thing it's a perfect sort of horror movie twist or sort of ending so it's like yep we're here get out he jumps out and he's back in bundanyaba yeah he sees the hotel he was in he's like sees the hotel sees like main street and he's like wait where it's thought you're going to take it to the city to the city it's like you said the city. It's like I thought you were going to take me to Sydney. It's like you said the city, mate. This is a city. <laughs> yeah, it's it's very Kafka actually. It's yeah, a, that idea of sort of <laughs> this this absurd notion of like just you know, oh, you think you're out of Yabba Yabba? No, no, you're 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 back there. Yeah, yeah. There's... And I think he goes back to the. I'm just trying to think. He uh, goes back to the pub. And Chips comes back to, and notices him, just sees him like just in a horrid state. Yeah, yeah. And I think actually Chips early in the film also vaguely mentioned someone who went had a similar fate, I believe. Yeah. So it's sort of this idea of like almost like a cycle of people like John that come through the town, you know. Um, yeah, he goes to the par and then he goes back to Doc's place, I believe, to try and kill him. Yeah. Well, because he 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 keeps his rifle basically, because like he realized like uh, I think I think the the guy driving the semi trailer is like at least you got a free ride. He hands him back his <laughs> rifle. Yeah, yeah. He then goes back to John uh, the doc's place, you know, to 
I think, yeah, he tries to kill him, I think is the idea. And I think there's the vague, it doesn't directly say so, but I think there's a part of him that's ashamed about what happened that night after the yeah. kangaroo hunt. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, he tries to find him, doesn't see him. You know, he's, yep. you know, he's, he's off somewhere. You know, yep. And there's a great bit where like he puts a rifle up to his mouth trying to mm. commit suicide. Sorry, we, I forgot to mention just before this, I think this is the moment just before he you know gets to the semi-trailer to get to the i think the place where they're at like Mm. he gets a ride from someone else and this is where he says oh come on in and have a beer and this is where he just goes off and being like you you people it's like all you're doing yeah it's like how do you get offended by this but like you do all of these horrible things and or like you're so accepting of all these horrible things but something as simple as like turning down a beer you get so angry about like what the fuck is the matter with you yeah he's just lost it yeah he's just and he's you know he he and like there's a part of himself that hates himself for actually giving into that stuff so not easily but like he sort of gives into it to a certain point and there's that much very much a sense of self-loathing in himself Mm. for going down that level he's also here's something that i've only just kind of thought about uh, about now because he's he's so desperate to get back to sydney because he says like he's got a girl i'm starting to think he doesn't actually have a girlfriend back in sydney i I think he's just or like I'm, I'm i'm kind of spec speculating a bit about that now because i'm not exactly sure because in, in terms of the fantasies he's had they're not together yeah that is yeah i that is that could be true yeah i mean i think he has a picture of a girl in his wallet but yeah there, there yeah, is actually not I've together never that. that's the yeah because maybe i think he's just so desperate to get out he's sort of like I guess, like, you know, because he's been isolated for so long, he's sort of maybe, I know, I'm reading maybe too much into the film here, but maybe he's just become so attached to, like, this idea that isn't actually real, that, like, he's just that desperate to get out, that, like, he's willing to chase this thing that may not even exist. Yeah, or maybe, like, he, like, doesn't know her as well as he, yeah. like, claims he does. But, yeah, that's actually a pretty interesting way to look at it, yeah. But, um... Yeah, there's that great bit at the start where, like, you see the girl, her in the bikini and at the beach, you know, just having the flashbacks or, you know, dreams mm-hmm. maybe perhaps. But, uh, yeah, sort of highlighting the film's yeah. exploration of sexuality and desire. Yeah, I, th- I think that sort of, I guess, like, sort of wrinkle to the story or at least my sort of idea or sort of theory about it, perhaps. I think that sort of, I guess, in my, in my head as well, like, I guess kind of makes sense within that context, though. Of like mm. how this, the film sort of you know the film sort of you know focus on sexuality and specifically like the repressed like sort of yeah the repression of that in this film we're almost at the end so he's, he's pretty much hope like he he winds up back in bundan yabba he's horrified about it goes to see doc he's not home uh he's, he's still so important reason why we've mentioned he still has his rifle now it's because he's he feels incredibly hopeless uh, he's about to shoot himself and you know yes, end it and, all and just before he takes the shot doc walks in we hear a gunshot and a cut to black yeah which is honestly when i first watched it where i thought the movie was going to end yeah and it would have and it would have fitted it would have been pretty yeah. fitting but yeah. i think of how the, the way the film ends which is where john wakes up back in he w- wakes up i believe in the Yabba hospital because i thought it might have been sydney to begin with but no it's still Yabba. Yeah, of course. <laughs> yeah, like it's it's not iso- it's not as isolated enough that they don't have a hospital, but you know. Yeah. Yeah. And so... plus also and plus also he used to be a doctor, so he probably would have been able to help him potentially. Yeah. And um 
Yeah. Do they, yeah. Do they explain that like he just missed like a very impo- like he just missed his brain or something like that? Like he only he was a bad shot. It's like it didn't he say lucky you're a bad shot? Uh yeah, something like that. He I think he shoots himself oh, in the te- in the we, temple. That's right. Yeah, he shoots himself in the temple. We also forgot to mention that um back in England, back back in an oh, in the Queen's own England, uh he was like a championship shooter that won like a silver medal at like not the Olympics or the Commonwealth Games or something like that, but like a smaller like I think like the at like the country championships or something back in England. Like he's a prominent shooter. And Doc makes fun of him. It's like you're, you know, you won a silver medal in shooting, but you couldn't even shoot yourself in your head. <laughs> oh yeah, I forgot about that. Yeah, yeah, they do mention that. Yeah, 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 yeah. And then yeah, Donald Doc makes that joke about yeah, he's a terrible shot, <laughs> considering. Mm. But then but, um, you know he basically recovers in the in the Bundanyaba hospital. But then by the time he's fully recovered, it's time for him to go back to Tabunda. <laughs> <laughs> and there is the bartender and the, the the owner of the tabunda hotel is just sitting out there waiting for him yep which is such a perfect yeah. way to end it oh god and what's the, the i can't remember what's the final line it's like enjoy your holiday john enjoy your holiday john oh, yeah. i can't remember what his response is it's like oh best summer oh, i can't even remember what his final line is yeah oh. i try to i'll look it up but yeah, it's something like that where it's like, you know, yeah, yeah, I, I enjoyed it. Something like that. Um... Oh, I found the quote. So this is what he says with the, yeah, when he when he said like, um, so the guy that, the guy that drops him off at like the, to where he's going to get the semi-trailer, here's the quote. Uh, the van driver, when he, as soon as he says, you know, like, oh, no, thanks. I've had enough to drink. The van driver says, what's wrong with you, you bastard? Why don't you come and drink with me? I've just bought you 50 miles in the heat and dust and you won't have a drink with me. What's wrong with you? And Grant responds with, what's the matter with you people, huh? You, you, you sponge, you sponge on you. You burn your house down, murder your wife, rape your child. That's all right. Not to, ha- not to having a drink with you, not to have a blaming bloody drink with you. That's a criminal offense. That's the, that's the end of the bloody world. And then he runs off and then the van driver says, yeah, you're mad, you bastard. <laughs> oh, classic. Yeah, yeah. It's such a great, it's such a great moment because it's like you know, I think particularly if the film wasn't as effective, it would just been so on the nose. But like, you really feel it when John says it, and it's oh. just like it's so fitting for him to say that. Oh, so, yeah. oh! I forgot another great detail. So when Dick says, "Yeah, what's the matter with him? He'd rather he'd rather talk to a woman than drink with us." That one of the uh, Tim says school teacher and he's like oh like almost acknowledging he's like oh yeah that makes sense <laughs> and it, it's that it's that sort of anti it, it you know that points towards the anti intellectualism that I guess you know these these sorts of type like these people sort of have and like that sort of that tall poppy syndrome as well that like is very much ingrained within the Australian culture oh yeah <laughs> I remember that school teacher line so good school teacher ah oh. <laughs> it's like John is such a character who so willingly will like criticize other people so like the the burn your house down line doesn't feel out of character for him to say that Mm. it just works really well yeah and then the film brilliantly bookends the film with pretty much the exact same shot of the the you know the wide uh, establishing shot of tabunda just the pub and the schoolhouse and the railroad that separates them 
and mm. just the barren like kilometers square kilometers of desert that just surrounds it he's basically <laughs> back in isolate he's back in his isolation and he's probably going to do this all over again he's probably going to have to wait another six months before he can leave this place and then that's the end we also get the producer's note in this new um you know restoration that says yeah about the rue hunting scene uh real hunts from professional licensed shooters shown uncut that these scenes were shown uncut after they consulted with animal animal welfare organizations (sighs) <sighs> they'll need that note on there <laughs> yeah well i think i think we should also say just two, two quick things because i remember you sharing this thing uh it was i believe uh, there was an interview with ted kotcheff like a couple of years ago i believe oh, ted, kotcheff, yes. ted kotcheff who i believe turns 90 this year still kicking still shit. alive ted oh kotcheff yeah is still alive like and ted if you're listening we love the film so yeah Great film. I Great mean, we film. prefer we preferred you didn't do the kangaroo thing, but yeah, I think I think Weekend at Bernie's is your masterpiece, but this comes pretty close. <laughs> uh. <laughs> but yeah, there's that great interview. I might even try and pu- I might even put the audio of it at the end of this episode. But yeah, it's basically him at the Cannes premiere telling this story about this young American filmmaker sitting behind him, basically like riding every bump of the film, like audibly reacting and like you know clearly loving every single aspect of the film the voice kept saying wow wow what a scene boy this director is great this is great of course music to a director's ears to hear all this approbation right (laughs) i didn't mind i'd seen the film 600 times wasn't distracting me (laughs) and um anyway and the climax of the film which is it's a rape scene right and uh, he says, wow, this director, he's going to go all the way. He's going, he's going all the way. Oh my God, it's so great. Brilliant, he went all the way. And, uh, but I went outside and the, the UAPR publicity guy, I said, there's somebody sitting behind me. Uh, do you know who he was? No, nah. I was American. No. Nah. I said, oh, then suddenly he just came out of the movie. I was, I don't know what you coming out late. I said, that's him. They said, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's a young American director. He only made one film that flopped. He said, he'd be of no interest to you, Ted. I said, well, I'd like to know his name. He said, what would mean, wouldn't mean anything to you. What do you, want, what, what do you want to know his name for? Just give me his name. So the other guy said, I remember. It was Martin Scorsese. I said, you're right, I've never heard of him. But name stuck in my head, right? And like, you know, I believe, I don't know how much of a hand Martin Scorsese had with, you know, like, I think he has been, you know, Martin Scorsese, very, you know, vocal champion of, like, these sorts of films that would otherwise go unseen. Like, you know, like his whole sort of collections that he does with Criterion, which I cannot remember the names of. World Cinema Project. World Cinema, yeah, his World Cinema Project. You know, he he's just, you know, he's a man that loves cinema. He doesn't like Marvel movies, and that's a, a, an opinion that he is rightfully allowed to have, so shut the fuck up about it, please, internet. <laughs> Yeah, and I remember in the video he describes that something like um, when the homosexual scene was happening, he was like, like oh, gonna... oh, they're really, they're really going there. This, yeah, this like, is great. He's going to go all the way. He's going to go all the way. It's amazing. <laughs> Which is such a Marty-type now, response. Now, now, that, now that you should see, to, as Marty would say, now that you should see. <laughs> yeah, and I think actually, I think he gave um, the, I think he gave them like a, like a review-type uh, yeah. quote 
for their uh, like re-release, yeah. I believe. I, I believe, believe because this new version, I believe, it made its premiere at the Cannes Film Festival, I believe, in two thousand and nine. And I think maybe even Scorsese might have been because that would when would that have been in terms of his filmography? That would have been he probably would have been filming Hugo then, actually. So yeah. I'm not sure. <laughs> but um, yeah, he gave his review or like his like quote, and that is on the cover of the new Wake and Fright posters. Yeah, so, is it? He's just gonna go. He's gonna go all the way. He's gonna go all the way. <laughs> this is great. Oh, oh my god! Wow, he really, he really went. This <laughs> is like, like you instantly hear that. It's like, oh, that's so Scorsese. That's such a Scorsese yeah, thing to do. I know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's brilliant. Uh, just before we sign off, as well, have you seen the 2017 TV miniseries remake of Wake and Fright? I've kind no. of not just out of protest because I cannot imagine it. Maybe it's closer to the book. I'm not sure, but like I'm, I have a morbid curiosity to check it out, but I'm, you know, it's, you know, it's like remaking Psycho. Like, you know, yeah. it's a thing that's, you know, perfect in its form that it is now. And like, you know, any sort of remake is probably, you know, completely sacrilegious, but you know, but, I'm, I'll go into it with an open mind whenever I watch it. Plus, it's set in modern day, so many right. elements of the plot are just cancelled out, you know. Yeah, like, you know, certain technology, which probably you would be able to use. And uh, it also is directed by the very prestigious Australian director, Chris Standers. Oh, that's right. Oh, my God, I forgot about that. Director of Red Dog, Australia Day, Danger yeah. Close. Uh, yeah. Australia Day, which is Australian Crash. <laughs> it's really bad. <laughs> Oh, yeah, I imagine it is. But, like, it's really funny, though, to have such an Australian director do it because you just know if he was one of the audience members when the film came out, he would have hated it. Yeah. He would have hated it with his guts. But, um, yeah, I have no intention to watch it. I think it was, like, a miniseries type thing. Yeah, yeah there was, like, two 90-minute 90, two episodes. I think. And, um, oh, damn it, what's his name? The, the Australian actor who's in everything. Um, David Wenham? Yeah, yeah, he plays like the Chips character in it. Oh, does he? Oh, okay. I was because wondering. I thought he might have been the Donald. Play I thought he might have been Doc, but nah, he plays Chips character. Yeah, but yeah, I do not care to watch it. <laughs> and plus, I think also it sort of annoys me having a modern version because I think one of the best things about Wake and Fry is that even though it came out now, literally like fifty years ago, it's still like its themes and its ideas. And also just the film itself feels incredibly yeah. timeless. Like it, it's stood the now, test of time, absolutely. You watch it now and you're not going to think, oh, these ideas about Australia are so dated. And it's like, no, you can literally go into any pub, you'll see characters like these. You know, still horrible stuff that they do here happens now, you know. It's just, yeah, it's, it's yeah. just incredibly timeless. It's just, it, there's like, you know, you literally could set it, well, you, you probably shouldn't say it any other time because, you know, because of certain things like technology and such. But, like, you know, the ideas that it explores are just, you know, they resonate then just as much as it does now. Yeah. I'm just I'm just looking over the cast of the 2017 version and it's Alex Dimitriades who plays Doc Titan, who um hopefully I'll get to do Head On on this podcast at some point because that is a brilliant film and he is great in Head On. Um, mm. Also, Karen Pistorius plays Jeanette in this one. Um, as you said, David Wenham is Jock Crawford. Uh, Faisal Bazi is also in this series as well. He's a great actor. So it's got a pretty decent cast. I'm just... Uh, I, just I don't know. The, the, the crew standers factor. <laughs> it is the it is the, the crew standers of it all, yeah. Oh, God. 
I, I mean, yeah, I don't really just, I just don't get why they would make it. And this was after the restoration too. So it's not exactly yeah. like they had the excuse of like, oh, you know, the original one's lost. So it's not like, yeah. Yeah. It's, <laughs> I mean, actually, to be honest, the restoration is probably why they made it. It's like, oh, let's cash in on this. You won't find me watching it willingly. <laughs> uh, I'll, I might check it out at some point, but it will. I'm almost certain that it will not hold a candle to what this film is. Oh no! <laughs> because like this was the big yeah. As as we said at the beginning of the thing, this was basically helped in kickstarting the Australian film industry back up again. Like it wasn't until like Picnic at Hanging Rock where it well and truly sort of got going again. Like, you know, like, you know, after then the AFC was founded, which is now Screen Australia, like, you know, the big sort of funding body. Like around this time, like early seventies and the sixties, because Jeddah basically Jeddah the Uncivilized is the film that basically killed the Australian film industry for like in terms of production here like in the like the 60s and like the 70s like there was still a, a handful of films being made but they're like really really low budget like the sort of ochre comedies that you see like oh, you know like yeah. you know i mean the, you know the ones that were the beginning of like you know like the exploitation like films like stork barry mckenzie like where they're a weird mob like these films were being made but mostly what is the australian australia was in the sort of film landscape was just you know international productions coming here to you know when they couldn't go to like you know Africa or wherever for the desert, they would just come here. Yeah, it's like Wake of Fright. I guess on some level was sort of the start of the Australian new wave, like in a like in a creative sense, if that makes sense. But then, like with Pitney Canyon Rock, it's like okay, this is the actual hub of Australian filmmakers creating Australian art that now is resonating with everyone. Like Wake of Fright was sort of like the first like real proper Australian Australian film to really. Um, particularly I guess thematically as well it was probably one of the first to really go in depth about like some of the the darker side or the, the dark heart of Australia yeah for sure and yeah it's a masterpiece that has stood the test of time for half a century mm. and you know I, I get, I've only seen it twice and you know I'll still definitely be seeing it many many more times uh, oh, yeah. Maybe I, I probably in not I probably won't watch the Rue shoot scene every single time just because you know I need to be happy at some points <laughs> and that that scene is incredibly distressing but you know is still like one of the most in, uh, it's 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 one of the most haunting things I've seen in the cinema on mm. honest on in, in a film ever yeah. I think the key thing is that it is effectively haunting. It's not just haunting because of the actual context of it, but like. Like in terms of actual craft editing and such, it is such a well crafted sequence that is just, you know, yeah, it's as, as we've said many times, it's a horrifying scene to watch. Yep, and it's a horrifying film to watch, but just so, so incredible. And oh, yes, yeah. if you haven't seen this film, please, please make sure you do. Obviously, content warning in terms of animal abuse and, you know, all of that other stuff in terms of excessive drinking and, like, very, very oppressive atmosphere and a fair bit of violence too. Um, mm. yeah, so watch at your own risk. But if you, if you feel like you're up to it, it is on Stan. And, you know, I think the Blu-ray is widely available. Like, it's being celebrated a lot now because it recently had its 50th anniversary. Please watch this film. It's incredible. Yeah, it's yeah, it's what it's what it's like. Just not only one of the great Australian films, but it's also like just one of the great films. It, it is genuinely made. one of the greatest films I've ever seen. Yeah, it's just it's timeless in how effectively tense and oppressive it is, and it's just 
I think for particularly anyone outside of Australia, I think it provides a really unique sort of like gateway into sort of showing you that like, you know, we're not the cliche versions of what everyone says we are. <laughs> yeah, 100%. And Liam and I could have gone on for hours and hours and hours on this film. But we're, we're going to spare it here. We're going to end it here because, you know, I think we've covered most of the bases here and, you know, we just want to make this a listenable length as well. So uh, thank you very much, Liam, for coming on this. And thank, yeah, thank you for, for coming on. Uh, where can people find you online if they want to see your film writings or just general whatever you're doing online? Um, oh, yes, yeah, I'm on Twitter with, uh, if you look up the username, Wake and Shite, then <laughs> a, fun, a fun little pun of... Yes. Uh, it blends your two favorite things together. It's Malcolm Tucker and Wake and Fried. Exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah. And you'll probably, you'll probably find my letterbox on there. I just log stuff though. So you won't find mm. many particular esteemed writings or whatever. So yeah, yeah, that's the main place. And yeah, I'm glad I was brought on because this is you know, an amazing film. I think any opportunity to talk about it is a very fun one. Absolutely. It's a pleasure to have you on. You were like the, per as soon as I wanted to start this podcast and do Wake in Fright as the first episode, you were immediately who, who came to mind. Let, let that be a lesson, kids. If you want to be on a podcast, <laughs> use a pun title that is fitting to the film that's going to be talked about. Yeah. And conversely, I will be on any Freddie Got Fingered podcast in the future. Just look for it. Like, uh, that's pretty obvious if you look at me when I'm on Twitter. <laughs> yes. Uh... But if you like this, please stick around for this series because we've got a whole, like a really good lineup of guests doing a, a really good lineup of films, hopefully soon. Uh, in terms of frequency of when this is going to happen, uh, still figuring that out. Going to see how successful this episode is to figure out like when, how frequently and like actually create a format for this type of show. So uh, stick around for that. And the way that you can do that is to subscribe to us wherever podcasts are. We are no longer on SoundCloud because we recently switched hosts over from SoundCloud to Anchor. So if you listen to podcasts on Anchor, you can find us there. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts and on Spotify. Basically, wherever you get podcasts, just search for another bloody movie podcast and hit subscribe. Like our Twitter, AB Movie Podcast, we're there. We are on Instagram at Another Bloody Movie Pod. And we're also on Facebook, but Another Bloody Movie Pod as well. If there is an Australian film you want us to cover, and specifically or have an idea for a guest that you want to try to get me on, to try to get for me to get for that specific episode, make sure you get in contact with me. We are at, an, we're not at, sorry, we are Another Bloody Movie Pod at gmail.com. Send your correspondence that way. And also, you can follow me both on Twitter and Instagram, both at SeanHub underscore, as I've said in previous episodes, and a, a pun that only works if you have an Australian or British accent. That is SeanHub underscore, S-E-A-N-H-U-B underscore. Um, or you can also find me on Letterboxd. I'm just at Sean Coates, no caps and no spaces. That is S-E-A-N-C-O-A-T-E-S. And you can also find my writings, my longer film writings over at moviebabble.com where I currently have a review for Taylor Sheridan's new film, Those Who Wish Me Dead. And at some point, my retrospective piece on Freddie Got Fingered for that film's 20th anniversary will be published sometime soon. And for people, and Liam is hoping to be back on this podcast at some point because he wants to be on for whenever we do Chopper. A film which I still have not seen. And maybe maybe when Blonde comes out, uh, Andrew Dominic's new film, maybe that's when we'll do Chopper. Yeah, and also uh, Hoyts. I don't know whether the Hoyts over there have one. Or, uh, um, Chopper apparently is playing in August in Hoyts. Oh. Yeah, so that might be a pretty good opportunity to go see that. 
but what i'll use this podcast too get we need a bloody blu-ray release for chopper i, I can't, is I this, can't there still isn't one no there isn't wow, and it, is... it's it's such a vivid film too like in terms of uh cinematography and color it's like wow <sighs> is there even like hd ones available on like digital and things like that i don't think so. i think like dvd quality is probably the best it's probably the best quality there is it's uh it's, it's so annoying Jeez. i think i believe it i think it might be palace who have the like just who had like home oh rights yeah to yeah, it. yeah they had the rights which uh, so white palace make make a blu-ray please you had the please. 20th anniversary last year you missed your chance come on i know this is this is bullshit but yeah that that i'd be very keen to talk about that film because that is yeah that that's also a very good film though thankfully not as terrifying <laughs> as wake and fright well, in terms I'm of ex- content i'm excited to watch it whenever that will be and as as a uh, swinburne as a recent swinburne graduate you know um andrew dominic and i are on the same level as uh, swinburne film graduates so you know <sighs> yeah that'd be great but yeah so thanks again for liam norville for coming on I would say tune in for the next episode, but I don't know what the episode will be and who my guest is going to be. So just make sure you say subscribe, keep up to date with another bloody movie podcast, wherever you listen to, follow the socials and keep up to date. But until the ne- that next episode, we will see you later. Goodbye. <laughs>